Welcome to episode 12 of the Be Emmaus podcast, where we'll be discussing the New Testament portion of this week's reading plan. My name is Anton Brooks, and I'm here with David Schrock, the pastor of preaching and theology here at Aquaquam Bible Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. So we're going to take a look at uh, John 15 first. Uh, In John 15, Jesus describes himself as the true vine. Let's read verses 1 through 6. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may be more fruitful, or that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into a fire and burned. So what do these scriptures mean and do they apply to us today? Yes, there are a lot of things going on here. Um, Certainly the intensity factor of John 15 is great, right? Right, Because this comes after John 13 where Jesus is, um, he washes the feet of his disciples, he celebrates the Lord's Supper, Judas has gone out, and now uh, they are moving towards uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, they're moving towards his arrest, his crucifixion, his death on the cross. And in John 15, it seems that they're, they're traveling and they're walking towards the garden. And, uh, and he says, I am the true vine. Right. And we might imagine, one, that maybe he just sees a vine, mm-hmm. right, uh, on a wall or something like that. And says, you know, kind of like this vine, like I'm in you, you're in me, and there's a union that is there. But it's really important to remember <clears throat> that in the Old Testament, uh, Israel is called the vine of God. Right. They were created in order to bear fruit. Right, and you see the vineyard language in a place like Isaiah chapter five, uh, as well as in the book of Ezekiel, um, and that Israel was plucked up and planted uh, into the, the land of God to bear fruit for His glory. Right, but they failed. Right, they were filled with thorns and thistles. Uh, they didn't bear fruit to please the Lord, um, but rather. Um, they rebelled against God and were filled with poisonous fruit. Mm-hmm. But now Jesus comes and he is all that Israel was not, right? He's a true son of Israel. He is the true vine. He says, my father is the vine dresser, King James, the husbandman, right? He's the one who's going to produce fruit. And the way that's going to happen is he's going to be putting people uh, in union with Christ, right? So these branches will be in union with Christ. Mm-hmm. And as they abide in him, his word abides in them, they will bear much fruit to the glory of God. Right? Earlier uh, in John's gospel, he says that you will um, uh, do greater works right. uh, than, than I have done, right? And so it is that God's disciples, the disciples of Christ, as they abide in him, the spirit will come and will fill their lives with love, joy, peace, patience, all this fruit that is there. And through them, as the gospel is proclaimed, there will be people who come to faith in Christ and they too will be the fruit of God and the fruit bearers. Right? So maybe some people want to say, you know, Christians are fruity. It's not exactly what, what it's saying. <laughs> right. But it does mean that those who come to faith in Christ uh, will bear fruit to the glory of God. So verses 7 and 8 talk about that. It says, if you abide in me, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Mm. Right? So 
One other thing to see, though, and that's in verse 6. And verse 6 is often one of those verses um, that, can you lose your salvation? Right? This is a verse that can be, can be brought up for that. So verse 6 again says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Right. It does not mean that if you are a branch in Christ, that somehow you can remove yourself out of that. Somebody else can take you out of that. Jesus already said in John 10, using a different metaphor of the sheep, uh, that you are in my Father's hand, you are in my hand, and no one can pluck you out of our hands. Um, what I think it's saying, is speaking particularly to Israel, that those who are there at the time of Christ, those who are in Israel, who fail to trust in their Messiah, will receive God's judgment. Right. Right? So, but those who are in the new covenant, those from Israel or the nations who are uh, the branches that are either naturally brought in or grafted into the vine, they will bear fruit to the glory of God. And as they do, they'll prove to be the disciples of Jesus. Mm -hmm. But those Israelites at that time who reject him will be thrown and uh, thrown into the fire and uh, destroyed. Also, you read verse 7 and 8. So yeah. I'll take a look real quick at verse 7 where it says, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, um, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now, I've heard people use this scripture mm -hmm. for, um, you know, making Jesus a genie or God a genie <laughs> word that yeah. if you abide in Jesus that, and you ask for something specific, regardless of what it is, yep. that it will be given to you. And so uh, it is my assumption, of course, that that is not the way we should read this. Yeah. Um, do you have anything to, to add to that? Yeah, I think right in the verse, right? I mean, verse 7, it says, If you abide in me and my words abide mm. in you. Right, yeah. Right? When the word of God comes and begins to do its work in our heart, it gives us new desires. Mm -hmm. And those new desires produce in us prayer. Right? And so we're asking God, not based upon our human fleshly desires, mm -hmm. Jesus as a genie giving us what we want, but rather these new desires that are in keeping with what God is doing in us. Yeah, those are the things that he wants to, to answer and to glorify. It's a verse like Psalm 37.4. Mm -hmm. right? Psalm 37.4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Right, yeah. right? The key part of that is that you're delighting yourself in God. Right. And as you delight in him, the things you want are the things that he wants. And the things that he wants begin to be what you want. And he gives you your desires of the heart because he gives you a new heart. Right, yeah. Right? So I think that's what's going on in... In John chapter 15, a couple of the verses that help us to see that, uh, if we go to John 16 uh, in verse uh, 24, it says, Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Mm -hmm. Right? So there's a way in which our prayer is motivated by joy and the things we're praying for, when they're in keeping with God's word and in keeping with God's will, our joy will be, f will be fulfilled. Right. And there's another verse to see. It's in John 14, verse 13. Okay. John 14, 13 says, Whatever you ask in my name, so same idea as in John 16, mm -hmm. this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Right. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Right, so here, the prayer that God is going to answer is one according to his will that will ultimately bring glory to God. Right? And 
God's never going to give us anything that brings glory to ourselves right, or yeah. that brings us and takes us away from Him. Right. right. So I think it's important to read John 14, 15, and 16 together, those different statements of prayer together, that again, Jesus is not just a genie in a bottle to give you whatever you want, but rather when we are saved, He gives us a new desire so that when we pray out of that new desire, God is glorified and His glory becomes our greatest joy. Uh, and all of those things are working together. I'm glad you, that you cleared that up because the way you focused on putting God first mm-hmm. um, and what we ask for and how when we receive a new heart that our desires are aligned with God's desires yeah. uh, totally is against what the prosperity gospel teaches. That's right. Because the prosperity go- gospel teaches that whatever you want. I've heard pastors say that if you don't have money or if you don't have possessions, then you aren't saved. Yeah. Um, big time TV preachers. Yeah. I'm talking about the local preachers. Yeah. I'm talking yeah. about preachers who have millions of yeah. uh, people watching them. So yeah. I'm glad that you were able to put an explanation to that. Well, and think about this, right? When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, the first mm-hmm. thing that he says is, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Right, or yeah. glorify your name. Sanctify your name. Mm-hmm. Right? So the first part of our prayer should be a desire for our Father in heaven to receive all the glory because of what Jesus Christ has done. That's right. And when our prayers are focused on that, then our prayers for daily bread will fall in line with those, right? right. God has not given us prayer just so we can get, you know, comfortable pillows to make our life all that much better, <laughs> right, yeah. right? As much as see His glory and to find our life in that glory. That's awesome. We had a conversation last night with a brother. We were talking about, you know, how Jesus has already done so much, you know, mm. for us and how mm-hmm. blessed we are. You know, we're, we're comparing how we live to how the disciples lived and just how 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 easy it is for yeah. us, you know, to be able to worship and no one's chasing us to kill us, at least not yet in this country, yeah. even though yeah. we seem to be heading in that direction. Yeah, sure. Um, currently, you know, we're able to come together on Sunday morning and, and worship and, you know, how much of a blessing it is to uh, to live in the, the, a time like this. Yeah, you know. that's true. So still staying in chapter 15, I want to take a look at verses 18 and 19, which read, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I choose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So, you know, basically kind of what we're just talking about, you know, in our country, um, like many others in in the world today, um, war has been declared on Jesus on the word of God. Should this hatred toward Christians be surprising since we all belong to Christ? And and the reason why I ask that is, is because, you know, it is our natural inclination mm-hmm. to not want to be persecuted, yeah. right? Yeah. But it, it really should be our expectation that yeah. if we're lining up, or I'm asking, should it be our expectation, if we're lining up with the word of God and we're preaching the word um, as it's given to us in the scripture, yeah. should we expect anything else? Yeah, I mean, what's surprising is that in our nation, there's been so much freedom for worship. Right. Right? I mean, we often give thanks for the freedoms that we have to worship, and we should give thanks to God for that. It's an incredible thing that we are not persecuted for that in the way that it happens in other countries. Correct, right? yeah. Uh, and yet we shouldn't be surprised when those things happen even here, mm-hmm. right? When we see things like what happened in Sri Lanka uh, mm-hmm. on Easter Sunday, mm-hmm. right? it's like that is a reminder to us of the spiritual warfare that is going on in the world. Right. right? Jesus Christ is enthroned at the right hand of the Father. All things are under his feet. And yet on the earth, there is still spiritual warfare going on as the gospel of light is going into darkness. The darkness uh, rails against it, right. hates it. 
right? And so if we experience that, if we are hated because of that, I mean, Jesus says, if they hate me, uh, they mm-hmm. will hate you. So we shouldn't be surprised by that, right. right? I think we should give thanks for the freedoms that we have. I think we should pray for the persecuted church. I think if things change in our country that, you know, that's the way that it's been in most places at most times, mm-hmm. right? It's not just that it's the end of the age here. Right. I often think that's a very ethnocentric way of looking at the world, yeah. right? I mean, in Sudan and the Middle East and places like that, if you're a Christian, you've been persecuted for hundreds of years. That that's hasn't right. changed, right? right. Um, so I think that is, that is the norm in the world, right? Going back to the very beginning, it said that the seed of the woman uh, and the seed of the serpent will be in conflict together. Uh, that's been taking place ever since. Do you find it ironic that in the places where Christians are most persecuted, such mm-hmm. as China or in places in Africa and the Middle East, is where Christianity is growing the fastest? As we're here, where we have the freedoms and we have yeah. the luxuries yeah. of this country, where we take it for granted as, yeah. a, as a country. Yeah. So I think when Jared Bridges preached on this a few weeks back, right, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, where it says we're to pray for those rulers and an authority, mm-hmm. it would go well for us, that there would be peace there. Like, I've heard people say, and I think Jared did a really good job of kind of correcting this, um, that we just need a little persecution. Right? Yeah, the church would yeah. be a lot better <laughs> yeah. if we were just persecuted. Mm-hmm. And yet 1 Timothy 2 says the exact opposite, right? That the, fir- the church will be able to flourish as there is peace ar- around us, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and yet we do know that when there is peace around us, oftentimes there's a kind of complacency that comes in. Yeah. Or at least there are those who are the true vine, the true sheep, and those who are not. Mm-hmm. And it's more difficult to tell. What you have in a place like China or North Korea, it's very clear who the true Christians are. Right, right? Yes. Because the persecution has, has sifted them. That's However, it also means that in those church gatherings, there are going to be less non-believers to hear the gospel. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, the gospel is going forward and it's doing incredible things. Right? It just shows the power of God that is there. Right. Um, but I, I don't know if we can just say it would be better to be persecuted than yeah. not when the scripture teaches us to pray for the peace that is there. Mm-hmm. But we do need to be careful that when there is peace there, uh, that we can grow complacent and just love this earth and this world uh, more than we ought to. Mm-hmm. Um, I think ultimately we can trust that God is sovereign over all of these things. Yeah. Uh, and that he is at work both in the places of peace and places of warfare. One of the things that I think we don't pray and give thanks enough about, we often will say, God, thank you for the freedom that we have to worship today. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, it is the spiritual freedom that God gives to us. The Mm. power in our hearts to be able to see and to believe that is a far greater freedom than anything that we can experience um, on the earth. Yeah, I agree. Wow. At the beginning of chapter 16, it seems like Jesus is preparing his followers and at the same time encouraging us to endure to the end. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So we just talked about the freedoms that we have and, you know, seemingly the our culture in America here is turning, not seemingly, our culture in America has turned um, I made a right turn away from the word of God, mm-hmm. you know, removing prayer, um, no fault, uh, divorce. I mean, we just go down the list. Abortion, yeah. just go yeah. down the list of all yeah. the things that, sure. that we're, how we're moving away from um, God in this country. 
So is he, are these words to help prepare us or to assure us that um, he is still with us? Or what does this mean here? Yeah, I mean, I certainly think it does give encouragement to the believer today. Mm -hmm. But I always want to see what does it mean in its original context, right? right? So as we're reading these words, these are the words that John is recording under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he is remembering by the Holy Spirit what Jesus said to his disciples on the night before his crucifixion, mm. right? So as he's talking about this, when he says that they will put you out of the synagogues, that's a very particular thing that's going to happen in Israel right. in the days after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection. Right? There's a kind of conflict that we see in the book of Acts where they are put out of the synagogues. Right, yeah. right? There is a persecution on these the way, the sect that's following after Jesus. Right? And that, I think, is indicative of how the church grows throughout the world. Right. But I think these words are particular to these disciples. Just another example of this is in John 14, 26. Oftentimes we take John 14, 26 as a promise directly to us. Mm -hmm. We'll say, uh, if it applies to us, it applies to us in a secondary sense. Right. Right? The first sense is a word to the disciples themselves. So John mm -hmm. 14, 26 says, But the Helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. So it's just important to see how even here that the Father and the Son will be sending the Spirit when Jesus goes to the right hand of the Father. Mm -hmm. The Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Right? And we often make a general application that the Spirit, one of the things that He does is to bring to mind things from the past, or right. scripture that we've memorized, or different things like that. And I think that is one of the things that the Spirit does, that He does bring those things to mind. But I think particularly what is being said here is that God is promising the disciples and the apostles who will be proclaiming the gospel and writing inspired scripture, mm. that they will have the Holy Spirit to remember all of these words. Right. Like, okay. how is it that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are remembering these words of Jesus? Well, it's because the Holy Spirit is empowering them as apostles to, and prophets to be able to write down the words of Jesus in such a way that we know that they're the inspired and errant word of God. Right. And so in that way, I think some of the things that we see in the Gospels are particular to the disciples at that time. Mm -hmm. Right. And so this is just one of those things, again, where even until Jesus is raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of God, we haven't come into the era of redemptive history that we're in today. Mm -hmm. It's only when Jesus is at the right hand of God, sending forth the Holy Spirit, that we finally come into this place and time where we have today salvation, and when salvation comes, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. But as we'll see when we read in the book of Acts, you have genuine born-again believers who did not have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them mm -hmm. until the day of Pentecost. Right, yeah. Right? And so there's some things in the Gospels that are unique to those who are following Jesus at that time. Right. Verses 5 through 12, Jesus says that he is going away, but he is sending the Holy Spirit, just as you were talking about, mm -hmm. and that the Holy Spirit would guide us into all truth or would guide them into all truth. Um, what does Jesus mean by this? You know, so I think he kind of just explained it, um, how, you know, when we receive the Holy Spirit, how it will work in us. And mm -hmm. it, you know, it, it helps us to bring remembrance. Is there, is there anything else that, that you would add to that? Yeah, I think the greatest thing is what he says in verse 8. Right, so verse 8 of John 16 says, And when he comes, he's talking about the Holy Spirit here, he will convict the world concerning sin 
and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Mm. So what is the Holy Spirit doing? He's coming and bearing witness to the people whom Jesus has gone to the cross and died for. Right. There's a couple of things that we see in a few other verses as well around John 16. John 16, or excuse me, John 15, verse 26 says, but when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from me, he will bear witness about me. Right? So what does the Spirit do? He's bearing witness about Christ. Mm-hmm. Right? I've often said this, that one of the ways that you can tell if a church is Spirit-filled is not by them talking about the Spirit. Mm-hmm. A Spirit-filled church is always talking about Jesus. Mm-hmm. Christ is the one who's at the center of a Spirit-filled church. Right. Right? Later, in John 16, verses 13 and 14, It says, when the spirit of truth comes, so he's the spirit of truth, he's the one who speaks truth, he's the one who bears witness about Jesus, he will guide you into all truth, for he will speak, um, not speak on his own authority, but whatever he he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Right. Right. So what does the spirit do? He is the spirit of truth. He convicts us of holiness. He witnesses to Jesus and he glorifies Christ. Right. Right. So if a church is filled with the spirit, there's going to be no greater joy in that church than seeing Jesus Christ glorified. Mm. Right. So I think that's one of the biggest things. Read through Paul's letters. There are more things that we find that the spirit is doing. Um, but in particular, he is a witness to Christ and to the father through the son uh, so that the people of God can know him. That is so important because, unfortunately, there's so many times in, in today's church, in a lot of today's churches, where man is glorified, yeah. where possessions are glorified, where the world is glorified over Jesus Christ, or instead of Jesus Christ, yeah. not even over Jesus yeah. Christ isn't glorified at all yep. um, in a lot of these churches. So uh, that's very important for us to understand that Jesus is the center of of everything. Yeah. Well, think about the way that the word anointing is used. Right. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes today. the anointed one of God is a particular person in the congregation, right? Right. I have a particular anointing. Mm -hmm. Later in 1 John 2, it it speaks of the anointing, but it's everyone. To be a Christian is to be a little Christ. Christ is the word for Messiah or anointed one, Mm -hmm. right? Every believer is anointed with the Holy Spirit. Each has different gifts that are there. It's not a particular anointing that makes one better than another. When that happens, it's often glorifying the person. Right, yeah. But those who are anointed by the Spirit are living their entire lives for the glory of God. It frees them from this uh, enslavement to seek their own glory and it liberates them to be able to live now for God's glory. I've also seen where churches will use or replace the word anointed for talented. Oh wow, So like their organ player is talented Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of times they pay an organ player to come in who isn't even necessarily a Christian and they'll call him anointed because he's Gifted, gifted in playing yeah. versus yep. being anointed um, and, and filled with the Holy yeah. Spirit. Yep. John 17 is often called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Is this the best way to think about John 17? Uh, yes and no, right? Um, so certainly Jesus here is talking about prayer, mm-hmm. right? So um, it says in verse 9, I am praying for them. Um, so he's definitely uh, thinking about that, but really, it's even more than that. I think kind of a, a window into right. the relationship between the Father and the Son, right? Because it's at uh, the last hour of Jesus' life. He is there on the last night before his crucifixion, right? And he says in verse 
uh, one, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. You have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Right. Right. So it's just striking the way that it's really kind of a, an inner personal dialogue between the Father and the Son. Mm -hmm. And it teaches us so much about salvation. It teaches us so much about the Son's relationship to the Father, the Father's relationship to the Son. We see here, for instance, that the Son is co-eternal with the Father, Mm -hmm. that they shared in the glory one with another before the foundation of the world, that the joy at the end of this period and what Jesus is going to accomplish on the cross is that now he's going to share that glory with his created people who he is redeeming Mm -hmm. right, and bringing to the Father. Um, We also see the particular nature of Jesus's work because he keeps talking here. Verse 6 says, I have manifested your your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours Mm. they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you for I have given them the words you gave me and they have received them and have come to know in the truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me and I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So there's this particular relationship that Jesus has with these people that have been given to him. See, Mm. what is that? Well, it seems that before the foundation of the world, there was a people from every nation that God the Father gave to the Son. And that the Son, agreeing with the Father, has come into the world in order to bring redemption to them. Those of his disciples are the first wave of those people, but now that he goes to the cross, those who have seen him and have heard his message are going to then proclaim that gospel to the ends of the earth, and at the end of his prayer, he's praying for them. He's praying for those who have not yet heard but will hear and will believe and will come into faith because the gospel is going out. And ultimately, he says that this is the way that he's going to share his glory with others. Not that we share in the divine glory, the divine nature of God, but we share in the human glory that was always intended for people made in God's image. And we see all of this being worked out in John 17. So, yes, it's a prayer of sorts. Um, but even more, it reveals to us who the triune God is. So in John 18, a lot happens. Yeah. Jesus is betrayed by Judas and arrested. Jesus faced Annas and Caiaphas. Peter denies Jesus, and the high priest questions Jesus. Jesus goes before Pilate. When Pilate was questioning Jesus, he asked him if he was the king of the Jews. In verse 36, Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world, or not from the world. So what in the world does this mean? Yeah, I think simply put, I mean, uh, the followers of Jesus don't use worldly ways to accomplish God's purposes. Amen. Right? The ends do not justify the means. In fact, one of the most important things that followers of Jesus learn to do is to walk in humility, to walk in mercy, to walk in righteousness, Mm. even as they're pursuing what they think is what is good. There's a temptation to say, okay, if I'm pursuing God's glory, I'm talking about that, well, then I can do whatever I need to to accomplish that purpose. Right. 
No, like we are to do God's work in God's way. Right. Jesus did God's work in God's way, mm -hmm. and therefore he was rewarded um, in his resurrection right. because he obeyed the Father to the end, not reviling, not fighting back, not calling down um, legions of angels to fight for him. He, in his divine nature, had authority to do that, mm -hmm. but in his human calling, in his full humanity, he was to obey the Father to go to the cross and die so that he would receive a king kingdom of the resurrection mm -hmm. and not a kingdom on this earth. So I think that's what Jesus is getting at there. That just shows the ultimate humility yeah. to have all the power at your, you know, at your beck and call yeah. and to deny that yeah. to, for others is just for your, for your, not only just for others, for your creations, you know, we're so much lesser yeah. Yeah. than Christ and what he went through um, for us and his humility to do that just, just, yeah. Unfathomable. I can't even imagine. Yeah, and the the right he had to receive all worship and all yes. honor, and the fact that he did not assert his rights. Mm -hmm. It's like that is mind boggling. Right. Right. And it crushes our pride, who mm. so, so often are demanding our rights, fighting for ourselves, defending ourselves, and yet the way of Christ is is not that way. If we were able to obtain this type of humility, mm -hmm. can you imagine how different our marriages would be? Oh, yeah. You know, if we denied ourselves and yeah. put the other person before ourselves, you know, because mm -hmm. I think that's, you know, I was telling my wife one time when we were in a study group, or I was telling the study group um, that uh, in marriage, um, most of our arguments, and I was speaking particularly about our disagreements, particularly uh, you know, um, about my wife and I, is because one of us isn't getting our way. <laughs> it's really what it boils down to. One That's of us right. it has an expectation yeah. of the other person that isn't yeah. being met, and we're upset about it. That's right. And But if we were putting the other person first, I think that the result would be, the yeah. heart of, of the thing would be a lot different. James 4, right? The yeah. heart of every quarrel. Yeah. I'm not getting what I want, yeah. Yeah. right? And it causes all kinds of catastrophe. Yeah, it does. In chapter 19, it seems as if Pilate was reluctant to sentence Christ to crucifixion, but the Jews themselves cried out for him to be killed. We know why the religious leaders hated Christ. Why did the everyday Jew seem to hate him? Yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of ways that the Bible has been used against Jews, mm -hmm. right, and verses like you find in chapter 19 to even provoke or, you know, spur on anti-Semitism. I think the biggest thing to see is that every single person turned against Jesus. Yeah. Right? right. Every single person was against it. It was the Jews and the Gentiles, That's right? True, yeah. I think it's important to see that in Acts chapter 2, uh, when Luke is explaining what, what took place here in Acts chapter 4, um, what we see is that uh, it says, For truly in this city, this is uh, Acts 4.27, For truly in this city there was gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So who's guilty? Everybody. Everybody, yeah. Right? You know, um, so I think it's important to see that, yes, the Jews uh, rejected their Messiah. Mm -hmm. They were led by um, their leaders, especially the priests and the Sanhedrin, to reject their Messiah. Mm -hmm. There were a few that did follow, mm -hmm. right? But even those few scattered yeah. on the day of his crucifixion. In so many ways, Jesus was entirely forsaken by everyone, mm -hmm. right? 
And again, that's just one more way that the punishment of God fell on his shoulders. And yet, in that, three days later when he rose from the grave, uh, he is first of all coming to Israel right. and to his disciples so that they could be the foundation of a new people so that even some of the priests we learn in Acts 6 come to faith in Christ. Right, yeah. Right. So ultimately, um, you know, why, do, why did this happen the way that it happened? We could give some answers to that. Uh, but ultimately, it's because humanity, Jew and Gentile alike, are sinners before God. The Gospels show how everybody turned against him, and yet salvation comes to, uh, to the Jew first, mm-hmm. as Paul says, and then to the Gentiles. Not because one is greater than another, but because chronologically and geographically, um, the Gospel comes to Jerusalem, and it spreads out from there to the ends of the earth. Right. That is a fantastic answer. I've never yeah. heard it put that way. <laughs> So, after Jesus was crucified and resurrected, the first person that Jesus appears to is Mary. So, do we have any idea why he appeared to her first? One of the reasons why I'm asking this question mm-hmm. is, I, I just recently heard a sermon about how women are more faithful than men because Jesus appeared to Mary first. But the first thing I thought about was, Mary wasn't going there expecting Jesus to, she wasn't going there out of mm-hmm. faith that he was going to be risen. Yeah. Yeah. You know, she was expecting to just you know, treat the body of of Christ. So I I was just wondering, you know, why he may have appeared to her first. Yeah, so I think there are at least two important reasons why uh, Mary and Joanna and another Mary Mm -hmm. saw um, Jesus first. Uh, I think, one, it shows the value and the importance of women as witnesses uh, to to Christ. Right, yeah. Right, that um, in a world at that time where women were thrown to the side and Mm. ignored and not listened to, there's value that is given to women by him revealing himself to them first. Right, yeah. Secondly, I think it proves the validity and the truthfulness of the story, mm-hmm. right? If somebody was trying to fabricate a story of Jesus' mm-hmm. death and resurrection, they would not have had him appear to women, or at least to women first. Right, yeah. Because at that time, the testimony of a woman was looked down upon, even it was invalid at times, right? Mm-hmm. So therefore, the inclusion of that shows this is how it happened. Right? It, it is giving testimony that the Gospels are not fabrications. They're not the creation of mankind. They are spirit-inspired retellings of what actually happened. And there at the tomb, we see that Jesus revealed himself to Mary and to others. I think the whole Bible proves out what you just said. Mm-hmm. I, and I think I may have said this to you before. If I was going to write a book yeah. to try and win people to anything, <laughs> the last thing I would have written is the Bible because I myself would have been put to death. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because, oh, I'm talking specifically the New Testament, the disciples, yeah. they were all persecuted. So, you know, they're saying that I want you to come join, you know, um, with me mm-hmm. in following Jesus Christ it, as they were being persecuted. Yeah. So if, and then they all went to death. And of course, John, you know, they, they tried to kill him, but um, they all went to death for it. And if it, if it wasn't real, why would they? Fi- why would twelve separate people and more actually? But yeah. you know, we're speaking specifically of the disciples. Why would twelve separate people who were who were spread out to death yeah. follow something that wasn't alive? It wasn't true. It doesn't make any sense. That's exactly you right. And, and just to add on to that, the fact that so many of those in um, the New Testament who are called upon by God mm-hmm. uh, to proclaim the message 
at one time or another, look really bad. Yeah, right, right, yeah. I mean, John Mark, who is there in the garden, presumably, who becomes naked and runs away, mm-hmm. right? right yeah. um, or the disciples who are in Acts 12, they're waiting on Peter and they ignore him at the door, mm-hmm. right? Or uh, Peter, who's constantly, you know, putting his mouth in his foot, saying the wrong thing right, to Jesus. Yeah. Or later, how Paul records how Peter was walking out of step with the gospel right, in Galatians yeah. 2. Like, if that's true, and Peter's the rock on the foundation, like, you're not going to have, if the church is dependent upon these men mm-hmm. and not on Christ and the testimony there, then they're not going to do everything they can to whitewash That's right, yeah. those negative things about those men. But ultimately, those men say, no, we're sinners too, mm-hmm. right? Paul is a sinner as well. He's never forgetting, nor is he ever trying to whitewash his background before right. he came to faith in Christ. And I think that's just another layer of truthfulness that we find mm-hmm. in Scripture. Amen. At the end of chapter 20, we find the following scriptures in verses 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So I love how this book gives us the specific purpose of this book. Mm -hmm. Is there a reason why this was written at the end of this book and not um, at the end of other books? Yeah, I mean, uh, one, just God's kindness, right? Yeah. So we're trying to read the book of John. Like, What's this all about? Mm-hmm. Well, it's given to us so that we would believe, yeah. right? Um, other books have a statement like this at the beginning. Like mm-hmm. Luke says that he is writing these things down to give an orderly account right. to Theophilus so that he might believe the things that he has heard. First um, John talks about, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. I write these things to you so that you may know uh, that you have faith in, in the Son of God. He who has the Son has life. Right. right. So there are different books that give us specific reasons. Not everyone does, but some yeah. of them do. And just for Bible study purposes, it's helpful for us to, okay, what is this book about? Well, yeah. if we find a statement like this, now we know. Mm-hmm. Now, when we read this at the end, it, it says, okay, now maybe I need to go back and reread yeah. the Gospel of John. And one of the things we find there is just this profusion of witnesses that are mm. there. Right? So all the way through from John the Baptist to the Father in Heaven to all these other people, they're just witnesses to who Jesus is. And why are there witnesses? So that we would believe. Right, yeah. Right? I mean, the way that faith comes to us is by the Holy Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit has inspired these witnesses to write down these words in a book so that they would bear witness to the things we haven't seen with our eyes, mm. right? So even as we talked about in Sunday's message, that Thomas was told that blessed are you because you've seen these things, but blessed are those who have not seen these things mm. and believe. Right, yeah. And yet we come to a seeing, saving faith when we hear these words of the eyewitnesses and the Spirit enables us to believe. So this concludes our discussion of the New Testament portion of our reading plan. As you follow along with the reading plan, if you have any questions or comments that you would like us to discuss, please send them to viaemmaus at obc.org. You may hear a response in an upcoming episode. Via Emmaus is a podcast of Occoquan Bible Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. Our prayer is that you would read the Bible and read the Bible better. For more resources related to this episode and the gospel-centered ministry of God's Word, visit obc.org.